towards the life, the fullness of life that He intends for them, and we are finding that it is what He intends for us and where He leads us as His Son Jesus takes us on a greater exodus. So join me in Exodus chapter 17, and I'm going to read the whole chapter for us. Exodus 17, verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Let's pray. Father, would you help us as we, as we come uh, to this, this chapter uh, in the book of Exodus, trusting that uh, these are not just really old words, uh, stories that um, that seem odd and strange, but but we have here gifts from you, words from you to us now in our lives in this place. Sometimes, Father, it's hard to trust that. So would you help us? Would you help us to come with faith and humility uh, to these stories and know that they are about us, to be able to hear them and understand them and respond to them 
with lives of faith and obedience. That is the work of your Holy Spirit, and it is a promised work. And so we ask you to keep your promise. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. The desert is a dangerous place. And it is a dangerous place not just because of scarcity. Not just because it's a place where, where there's a lack of basic resources like, like food and water. It is a dangerous place because of enemies. Land pirates who want to come and plunder and destroy God's people. In many ways, the major theme of the book of Exodus is conflict. It's war. And although God has won a decisive victory over Pharaoh and his great and powerful army, what Exodus 17 reveals to us is that the fight isn't over. We're not done with the theme of conflict. In fact, virtually with every step that Israel takes towards the land that God had promised them, another enemy stands in their way, preventing them, desiring their harm, desiring their destruction. Although they are destined for peace, they live in a time of war. For the time being, their existence is under threat. And there's a development with this theme in Exodus chapter 17, where in Exodus 14, Moses said, Stand still and watch. Just watch. And see what God is going to do as a part of this battle. Here in Exodus 17, Moses says, Alright boys, it's time to pull out the swords and join the fight. It is time for you to join the battle. To be a part of the war. And as I mentioned last week, these wilderness experiences of the nation of Israel are relevant to us. And they are relevant to us because in some sense, we, if we are in Jesus, we live in the desert. We, like Israel, are out but not yet in. Jesus has rescued us from slavery to sin, but he has not yet fully restored us and renewed all things. And if we live in the desert then we are endangered in the desert. We are threatened, just as Israel was threatened in the wilderness. And we hear the call also to join the fight, to be a part of the battle. I think that's why the New Testament so often describes the Christian life with the imagery of warfare. A famous example, Ephesians chapter 6, maybe you know it, where the Apostle Paul says to us Christians, put on the armor of God and stand fast. Fight. Go to war. Resist. Although in Christ, our ultimate destiny is peace, for now... We are at war. 
And don't you feel that? Don't you feel that? I think for those sitting in this room who genuinely desire to live out that, their Christian faith, don't you feel the resistance? Don't you feel the pressure, the tension, the battle? So with that connection in mind, I want us to come here to Exodus chapter 17 and ask a couple of questions. If we are at war, who is our enemy, and how do we fight? So first, if we are at war, who is our enemy? Israel was consistently confused about that question. And and you can see that because beginning at the end of chapter 15, into chapter 16 and chapter 17, the most common action the most common verb associated with the people of Israel was the verb to grumble. And that intensifies here in chapter 17 where we go beyond grumbling to quarreling, which is a word that has judicial overtones. It evokes the scene of a court where a person accuses someone else of a crime. Israel responds to their thirst by going to court. And Moses makes it really clear that they're not ultimately accusing him. They're not ultimately accusing the other leaders of the people of Israel. They are accusing God. They are making God the defendant. And they come against him and quarrel accuse, test Him. They treat God as if He is their enemy. You have brought us out here to kill us with thirst. So that even the name of this place becomes characterized by the quarreling and the testing of God's people. As they ask that fearful and angry question. Is God among us? Is God with us? Is He for us? The implication is, we think that God has become our enemy. That He is not with us and for us, but He is against us. So what a remarkable contrast to the words and the actions of God. As his people attempt to put him at the defendant's table, God says to Moses, I'm going to stand with you at a rock. And out of that rock will flow living water for the people that will allow them to survive and thrive even here in the dry desert. And what is God doing? He is once again showing up and saying, I'm not your enemy. I'm not your enemy. I am not a source of death. I am a source of life. Which then sets up the second part of the chapter when a real enemy shows up. God says, I'm not your enemy. 
And then a real enemy shows up. We don't know a lot about these people, the people of Amalek. The book of Deuteronomy tells us that when they attacked Israel, their strategy was to attack the weakest people first. So they would attack the the very old and the very young. Which is a disturbing detail, but doesn't completely explain God's reaction. Right? Doesn't, doesn't God here seem to overreact to this enemy of Amalek? I mean, he not only gives Israel military victory over them, but then he commits himself to perpetual war against them. And he devotes himself to their complete annihilation. Doesn't that seem like an overreaction? And this brings us to to one of the tensions of reading the Old Testament, because this is not the last time that God will talk this way. And and this is one of the really difficult parts of reading the Bible. It's a topic I can't fully engage this morning. And even if I could and had the time to do that, I don't know that I'd be able to answer all the disturbing questions that come up associated with this topic. But, let's take a step back. And let's remember the larger picture. Remember that God's plan for Israel is God's plan for the world. So remember what he said to Abraham? He said, Abraham, I am going to bless your family for what purpose? So that I can bless all the families of the earth. And so those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. That's the dynamic at play here. Which again doesn't answer all the problematic questions, but it does explain the scope of God's response. This is not some minor skirmish between tribes in the desert. This is a cosmic war between God's intention to bring blessing to all of creation and those who would oppose Him. This is a fight between God's good design to renew all of creation through His people and those who would come against them. And that not only addresses a little bit of the question of God's response, but it also helps us to answer the question, not only who was Israel's enemy, but who is our enemy? Who is our enemy? We need to see from Exodus 17 that God is not our enemy. Our enemy is whatever would oppose God and his intention for us and for all creation. The New Testament divides that opposition into three categories. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, elements of human culture, not the entirety of human culture, but elements of, the, of human culture in opposition to God. The flesh, our own desires in opposition to God. The devil Spiritual beings in opposition to God. Listen, our enemy isn't God. 
It is whatever would oppose Him and His will, His design for us and for this world. And that might seem like a really simple, maybe even an overly simplistic thing to say, but we need to hear it because we so easily misidentify threats. We so easily misidentify what or who is our enemy. We're like my kids. Every one of my kids had a stage where they were convinced that the vacuum cleaner was a threat to their existence. That the vacuum cleaner was their enemy. We just got out of there, or getting out of this stage with our youngest, Sam, who, even if I would walk towards the closet where the vacuum cleaner was stored, would latch onto his mom's legs and say, I cared, I cared, I don't like that, I don't like that. <laughs> how, how often do we live like that, misidentifying threats? Misunderstanding Who is our enemy? We think our enemy are circumstances that would threaten our comfort. Or would threaten our financial security. Or would threaten our pleasure. Or would threaten our sense of success. We think those circumstances are our enemies. And we respond with fear and anger and despair, and we live as if God is not among us. And maybe even that God is our enemy. Because He's brought us into these difficult and dangerous situations, maybe, maybe, he's, maybe he's against us. Maybe He's our enemy, but... Here's the reality of the wilderness. Here's the truth of the wilderness. God will lead us to places of need. God will lead us to the experience of lack, of loss, of thirst. He will ask us to do things that we don't want to do. He will ask us not to do things that we want to do. And the question becomes for us, Is God our enemy? Is God our enemy? Can we trust in those moments, in that tension, can we trust that He is not against us and stand against what opposes Him? Can we trust that He is not our enemy and resist what is against His desire for us? But how do we do that? What's the strategy for resistance? If we can identify who is our enemy, then we must ask a second question. How do we fight? How do we fight? I mentioned earlier that there's a development, there's a change here in Exodus 17, Moses is no longer saying stand and watch. He's saying move and participate. Join in the battle. And and it's interesting that this is also the first appearance of Joshua in the story of Israel. This man who will become the dominant leader of Israel, leading them over and over again into battle. 
So this is an important development that, that God's people are no longer passive, but they are now active in the fight. But then it is very, very significant that the story doesn't focus on the battlefield. The story doesn't focus on the battlefield. It doesn't talk about tactics. It doesn't talk about formations. It doesn't talk about military technology. Where does the story spend most of its time? Not on the battlefield, but on the hill that overlooks the battlefield. Right? Where we have this almost humorous scene of, of Moses holding up a stick and then getting tired because he's old and then bringing and finding him a place to sit and other guys holding up his hand so his hands won't drop with this stick. Why? Why does this story focus on the hill rather than the battlefield? Well, because the staff is the strategy. The staff is the strategy for the fight. Now, how could that be? How can a stick be a strategy? Well, notice, first of all, that this staff connects both of these stories. It plays an important role in both of the stories, both of the events of Exodus chapter 17, and then it connects those events to earlier events, right? In the book of Exodus, where Moses takes the stick and he touches the Nile River, the source of Pharaoh's power and prosperity, and he turns it into blood. And he takes the same stick and he holds it over the Red Sea and the sea divides and becomes a way of escape for the people of Israel. And then becomes a weapon of destruction against Pharaoh and all his armies. What's the point? Well, this stick, it's not a magic wand, right? This isn't Harry Potter. This isn't a magic wand. This stick is a symbol. It's a sign. It is another concrete way for God to say to his people, I'm not your enemy. I am not your enemy. And way more than that, I am your warrior. Look at what happens with this staff. It is the proof that God fights for his people. And so even when he invites his people into the fight, into the battle, what's the strategy? It's pretty much still the same. It is to trust that God is fighting for them. The message of the staff is you can run onto the battlefield because you have a warrior who fights for you, who will defeat your enemies and lead you into life. And so at this place that is named with the quarreling, the testing, the accusations of God's people as they accuse him of being their enemy, something else happens. At the end of the chapter, Moses builds an altar 
in this place. And he gives it a better name. The Lord is my banner, which is a military image. God marching out in front of his people. And why can they proclaim that? A hand upon the throne of God. Look at the staff. It shows you that God on his throne and all of his majesty and power moves on behalf of his people. And the message of the staff is a message for us. It is a message for us because of Jesus. Jesus who, at the beginning of his ministry, went out into the desert, went into the wilderness, and he faced our enemy. He faced our enemy on our behalf, and he, in the desert, stood successfully against the temptations of Satan. In the middle of his ministry, remember last week we looked at John chapter 6 and and we heard Jesus calling himself the bread of life, connected to the manna that God gives to his people in the wilderness. Well, in the very next chapter, John chapter 7, Jesus stands up at the Jewish festival that remembers the events of the wilderness wanderings of God's people. And Jesus stands up and says, whoever is thirsty, come to me. Come to me, believe, and living water will flow from your heart. And then at the end of his ministry, Jesus climbs a hill and he stretches out his hands. And he dies. And he dies suffering the judgment for our quarreling, our testing. Our resistance against God. And then he rose. Conquering death once and for all. So listen, we have something better than a symbolic stick. We have in the body and in the work of Jesus. God saying. And not just saying, but showing demonstrating I am not your enemy I am not your enemy and way more than that I am your warrior I fight for your life so the strategy for resistance the strategy for battling sin for battling what comes against God and His will, the strategy is belief. It is simply belief to hear the message that Jesus proclaims to us with His life, with His death, with His resurrection, with the gift of His Holy Spirit, that God is our warrior. We fight. How do we fight? Trusting that God fights for us. That's why Paul in that famous passage in Ephesians chapter 6 where he calls us to the war. What does he tell us to do? He doesn't tell us to pick up swords. He doesn't tell us to fashion our own armor. 
he says to put on the armor of God. And what is the armor of God? It's righteousness, it's peace, it's faith, it's the Holy Spirit. It is gospel realities. Gifts forged for us by Jesus. We fight because He fights for us. A seminary professor is named Dr. Bruce Walke, and a great, great Old Testament scholar, and he loved to tell us stories about his grandson. And his grandson, one of the things he loved most was to reenact and to play and pretend the story of David and Goliath. The great story of David defeating another enemy of God's people, this great giant. And so one night, he wanted to play this with his granddad. And he said, Granddad, I want you to stand there and you pretend to be Goliath and I'm going to pretend to be David. And he goes into his room and he comes out with a sock and a ping pong ball. (laughs) And he swings it around and he throws the ping pong ball and he hits his grandpa. But Dr. Walkie doesn't fall over. He confuses his grandson and so he takes the ping pong ball again and he swings it around and he hits his grandpa. Dr. Walke refuses again to fall over, and he does it again and again. And, and finally, his grandson was, was frustrated. And, and, and I mean, it's hard. I mean, You've got a biblical scholar who's not you know, acting out the story the way it's supposed to be. And he's like, Grandpa, you know you're supposed to fall over. You're, you're Goliath. And Dr. Walkie said, but the problem is you've left out part of the story. There's the problem with having a biblical scholar. Isn't it? <laughs> you, son, you've left, out, you've left out part of the story because before David slings the stone, he does something else. He cries out, the battle belongs to the Lord. That's the lesson here for us. Jesus calls us in to the battle. He calls us to war against sin and its effect on our world. He calls us to stand against what opposes God and His good design. But as we run onto the battlefield, in our lip, on our lips and in our hearts must be the cry, the battle belongs to the Lord. We fight Trusting that He fights for us. Let's pray.